trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, for the longest time, I felt like revel in wrong think was exactly the right slogan for this program. I'm having a little bit of a change of heart here. Thanks to my good friend, Spencer Worthington. Sapere Aude. Dare to know. I'm thinking that might need to be the new unofficial slogan. I'll tell you what, I'll have my people work on it. They'll get with your people. We'll, we'll do lunch, right? No, actually, I'm just, I'm looking at, to, at where we stand right now, and there's a lot going on. You probably get that impression. And uh, for people to take a good look at it, not flinch and turn away, no, this looks like it could be uncomfortable or unpleasant. You know, that's, it takes real courage to see things as they are. Well, this program is here to encourage you, think clearly, think independently. Whether you agree with me, that is not the point. First of all, because I don't have all the answers. But uh, secondly, there's just a lot of deception. There's a lot of uh, obfuscation of the truth and, and distortion and omission of things that really do matter. So how can you know what's going on? Well, that's on you. If you really want to see the world as it is, it's on you and on me to get out there and figure it out for ourselves. Yeah, I know. I'd, I'd prefer somebody spoon-feed me everything that's worth knowing and, you know, save me the time. But, gosh, you know, life isn't like that. Who'd have thought? Anyway, let's dive right in. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a day-to-day basis. Want to mention them? HSLAmmo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. I want to start with just a real quick audio clip from Tucker Carlson, who I think accurately sums up what is going on around us and why it is so hard to stay on top of it. Listen to what he has to say. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson's Tonight. Happy Monday. As we've often noted on this show, because it's hard not to notice, we are living in one of those moments where so much is happening all at once and information about it all is so tightly controlled that huge history-changing events can occur and in fact are occurring right now and nobody seems aware of them. It's pretty unsettling, actually. Here's one example. Europe is descending into poverty. Did you know that? Had someone told you that? So the most advanced continent on the planet, the birthplace of Western civilization, our civilization, is getting much poorer very quickly. It's moving backward at high speed. Just a year ago, Europe was a modern place. For example, the overwhelming majority of Europeans heated their homes with natural gas, as modern people do. In Germany, the continent's richest country, only about 6% of households, most of them rural, heated with cordwood. And you'd expect that given that, again, Germany is a modern industrialized country with central heating and indoor plumbing and all the other trappings of a society that has moved beyond the medieval period. Last year, only about 6% of Germans used wood to heat their homes, but that has changed dramatically. Demand for firewood in Germany has risen so fast that there is none left to buy. You can't get it. So desperate Germans are now cutting their own wood, scouring the forest like their ancestors for sources of heat. Watch. 
Okay, so I'm going to cut away there. <clears throat> he actually shows people out there, you know, in the in the act of, you know, cutting wood for themselves. And look, this is relevant to me, not because uh, you and I live in, in Germany, but I do have a daughter who lives there. And this concerns me a great deal. Things are, things are moving very rapidly in a direction where it looks like uh, we're going to be tested. And Europe is feeling the pinch of this right now, perhaps more so than we are, but you know, we've, we've got our problems too. So I'm going to shift gears here for a moment away from Tucker Carlson's uh, commentary. By the way, there is a link to that in the, the show notes at the com. I want to share with you a couple of thoughts from Jeff Thomas from internationalman.com about how it will happen suddenly. And uh, this is not to scare you. It's not to get you anxious. It's just to, to point out others are picking up on this too. In fact, as Jeff Thomas puts it, as the great unraveling progresses, we shall be seeing many negative developments, some of them unprecedented. Only a year ago, the average person was still hanging on to the belief that the world is in a state of recovery, that however tentative, the economy was on the mend. Okay, that was a year ago, and this is understandable. After all, the media have been doing a bang-up job of explaining the situation in a way that treats recovery as a general assumption. The only point of discussion is the method applied to achieve the recovery. But the recovery itself, well, that's, that's treated as a given. Jeff Thomas says, however, as thorough a distraction as the media and the governments of the world have provided, the average person has begun to recognize that something is fundamentally wrong. He now has a gut feeling that even if he's not well-versed enough to describe in economic terms what is incorrect, in the endless chatter he sees on television, you know, he, will, he still senses that the situation will not end well. In fact, Jeff Thomas says, I liken the situation to that of someone who suddenly finds all the lights off in his house, and he stumbles around in the dark trying to feeling, feel his way, and although he can picture in his mind what the layout of his house is, he's having trouble navigating, often bumping into things. This is similar to the attempt to see through the media and government smoke screens during normal times. But soon, as his government undergoes collapse, he will be getting some bigger surprises. He will find the furniture has inexplicably been moved around. Objects are not where they're supposed to be, and it's no longer possible to reason his way through the problem of navigating in the dark. Now, he says many of those who observe the daily news reports are beginning to figure out that they're being fed misinformation. Many are beginning to recognize that neither political party truly represents them, or for that matter, is even concerned for their welfare. These folks are now navigating in the dark, but the bigger surprises haven't yet occurred. There will be a certain amount of lead-up, plus a great deal of confusion, but the actual occurrences will be sudden. sudden rather. No one will be able to predict the dates on which they occur, except those very few people who control the triggers to these events. So what's he talking about? Well, crashes in the markets, for instance. Major bull markets rarely end with a whimper. They end with a major upside spike. And unfortunately, brokers and investors alike tend to think that if the market's been up for the last week, the last month, or the last year, it can be expected to be up again tomorrow. That makes them prime pickings for governments who may choose to falsely inflate a given market, creating an upside spike to encourage investors to toss their last few coins into the pot just before the bottom drops out. Now, in previous eras, it could take time for people to sell. And even in panic times, the bloodletting was not instantaneous. 
However, with the internet, all that's necessary is a major sell-off by one entity, one that goes through the stops of a large number of investors, and in a flash, the market goes through the floor. Now, he does have an editor's note here. Stops are the orders placed with a broker to sell a security when it reaches a certain price. But the bottom line here is the average investor wakes up in the morning to find out that he's been wiped out. Then there's the matter of commitments by governments. Should there be a currency crash, as is expected in many countries, promises made by governments will be abandoned suddenly, as though they'd never existed. And whilst millions of people will find themselves lost, unable to function without their entitlements, governments will evade their guilt through finger-pointing. Tories will blame labor, labor will blame the Tories, and the equivalent takes place in other countries. But the net result will be the disappearance of entitlements, either in part or in total. And the public will take out its anger through increased hatred of whatever party it is they already consider to be the evil one but they'll fail to understand that the collapse was unavoidable. Also, assumed national strengths will vanish. This one's interesting, especially when you look at what's shaping up around us right now. International alliances will fall away. Former allies will suddenly not be at the side of the failing nation. Former friends will sign alliances with the other side. Trade agreements will suddenly cease. Wealth, initiative, and favor will flow to the new foremost country and its allies. And all of the above will happen incrementally, not by any means on the same day, but in each case, the actual occurrence will be sudden. Just as Julius Caesar was at the peak of his power when his fellow members of the Senate drew their knives, a powerful nation is coddled right until the time of its fall. And Jeff Thomas says, in this regard, the U.S. will see the greatest abandonment of loyalties that any nation will experience. The greater the empire, the greater the pretense of loyalty to it, and the greater the abandonment when that fall comes. Now, when an empire collapses, it dies slowly. Unless it comes to an end through conquest, it deteriorates in a series of sudden jolts, and its leaders grasp at anything that might cause a delay, even if this means a worse outcome in the end. The process can take years or even decades. However, it's in the first few years that the major events occur that create the most significant damage. We're going to come back to Jeff Thomas's commentary here in a few moments, but I find it fascinating. He's he's accurately describing what's unfolding. And yet, you know, we can't point with certainty and say, okay, September 24th, that's the day. (laughs) This is when it's all going to come tumbling down. All we can do is try to discern what's happening. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to mention GarageDoorProServices.com. These are one of my sponsors. They are great folks. If you need commercial garage doors or you need residential garage doors, installation, repair, service for your existing garage door, these are the folks you want to talk to, Garage Door Pros. Call 435-525-2773. This would be for my listeners in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, and Colorado City, Arizona. Great little little place down there in the southwest corner of Utah, Garage Door Pros. A local company, quick response, wonderful customer reviews. You can check it out for yourself at garagedoorproservices.com. 
Com. So I'm sharing this article from Jeff Thomas from International Man about how it will happen suddenly. And I think most of us have the sense that something is building. We see things that are that are drawing towards some kind of a, a climax, some kind of a crisis, a crescendo, if you will. But we don't know exactly when. We just know this can't keep going the way it's going indefinitely. Now, Jeff Thomas talks about when an empire collapses, it's in the first few years that the major events occur that these events create the most significant damage. And he says that happens for two reasons. First is that the leaders of the country, believing in their own power, believe they can maintain control of their trade, their overseas control, their military, etc. And they find that when the crashes come, the rats desert the ship in every area. The second reason is that any empire builds its strength upon lies and exaggeration as much as it builds upon its true attributes. After a crash, these lies and exaggerations fall away, and in a short time, it becomes clear that the empire was, in its latter stages, a house of cards. So the warning signs are already taking place, but they're not being heavily publicized. The stage is set, and Jeff Thomas says we are approaching the first major events. Now, the victims in this play are unfortunately the average people who simply hope to have a decent life. They'll be caught unawares and unable to even understand what's occurred, let alone take action to save themselves. Those who have not spent the previous years educating themselves and preparing an alternative life will suffer the most greatly. And listen to this. He says, all who live in a country that's undergoing collapse will be negatively affected. Some will do better than others, but to live on this slim hope is much like being fortunate enough to live on the outskirts of Hiroshima in 1945. So there's little comfort in being one of the least injured. Better to have been in another country altogether, both during the actual event and during the terrible time that's sure to follow. Okay, that's not the most optimistic <laughs> note to end on, but I think he's uh, I think he's on target here. And And... I share this with you not for the sake of, well, there it is. There's some more fear porn. Hope you're scared now. It's more to just acknowledge, look, it's not your imagination. You can see, you know, things are coming to a head. I don't think there's any way out of this in which all of us don't feel some pain. We're all going to, we're all going to have to basically, uh, you know, take our turn, you know, trying to, to wade through this mess. But the good news is we've had advance warning. I know people have been working for years to just better their situation, to pay off all debt, to to own things that uh, that are tangible rather than just have all their money sitting in the bank in the form of electrons or, or whatever. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy time, and I I have no idea what uh, what some of those major events that uh, that are coming are going to look like. I mean, what's happening in Europe to me, that's a pretty major thing. You know, the fact that, uh, what was it I saw yesterday? I was I actually interviewed a, a young man yesterday in London, and he was pointing out it was, I think it was a coffee shop, had their uh, monthly heating bill or their monthly um, energy bill given to them. This is a little coffee shop. And it was something like 9,000 pounds, where normally they would be spending, you know, uh, a few hundred pounds, perhaps, you know, to keep their their coffee shop going. 9,000. 
I think the the equivalent I heard was uh, you look if your if your monthly uh, heating or cooling bill was running around 200 250 bucks suddenly you're getting a $2500 monthly charge. Can you imagine how that would affect your life? Crazy. I you know and again, I feel like I have skin in the game on this one because I have grandkids and I have a daughter who live in Germany and it's very very stressful for them. And the cold weather's not even here. Okay, I'm hoping for the best. I'm praying for the best. Encouraging her, you know, to encouraging my daughter, please, you know, wherever you can, shore up your self-reliance. That's pretty tough to do. In fact, in some countries, it's actually illegal. I think Germany is one of the places where if you have more than X amount of food on hand, that's considered hoarding, and it's against the law. Wow. I'm grateful to be where I am. I'm grateful to know what I know, but, uh, but I'm not going to pretend that, uh, well, at least here in America, we've got it good and we're going to avoid all of this. We're going to feel the pain too. And the, the great reset that the globalists seem to have in store for us, there is going to be a reset. I don't think it's going to be the one that they're counting on, but, but it's definitely coming. Better to be aware, you know, plan out uh, what your moves are going to be and, and to do everything in your power to make yourself an unplayable piece on their chessboard. All right, that said, let's move on here. I'm not trying to harsh your buzz, dude, but the push towards electric vehicles is not only getting really intense, but it has some very serious downsides. I'm including an article by Mark Tapscott. This is from pjmedia.com. 10 facts electric vehicle advocates don't want you to know. And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to, bag on anybody who just got themselves a new electric vehicle. I understand. These these are, you know, quite the thing now. In fact, uh, my, my in-laws were back in Washington, D.C. just a couple months ago and said, oh, yeah, everywhere you look, everybody is, is starting to move towards electric vehicles. Let's talk about some of the downsides, though. First of all and foremost, this every time you see a train car full of coal headed down the railroad tracks, that's electric fuel, electric car fuel. The coal is. What? Yes, EVs are powered by fossil fuels. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, fossil fuel-based power plants, coal, oil, or natural gas, make about 60% of the nation's electrical grid, while nuclear power accounts for 20%. So the electricity they're running on, yep, that's where that's coming from. Also, the batteries of EVs rely on cobalt. An estimated 70% of the global supply of cobalt emanates from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now, that's a country with deplorable working conditions, especially for children. But hey, at least you're keeping the air clean. Back to work, you. Let's see, number three on the list. A study released earlier this year by an environmental group showed nearly one-third of San Francisco's electric charging stations were non-functioning. And the population of San Francisco represents roughly 2% of California. Now, it goes on to say that supporters of the California law admit that uh, there will be a 40% increase in demand for electricity. California is going to basically outlaw internal combustion engines here in the very near future. This will add further strain to the grid and require increased costs for power and infrastructure. And according to one researcher, the strain of adding an electric vehicle is similar to adding one or two air conditioners to your home, except your EV is going to require power year-round, not just during the hot months. This is kind of a scary statistic, though. 
Today, 20 million American families, one in six, have fallen behind on their electric bills. That's the highest amount ever. Utility companies are going to need to add $5,800 in upgrades for every new EV for the next eight years in order to compensate for the demand for power. You know who's going to shoulder that cost? Yeah, it's going to be all the customers, all of them. Also, the average price of a new electric vehicle is currently $66,000. That's up more than 13% in just the last year, covering costing an average of $18,000 more than the average internal combustion engine vehicle. There's more to this article. I'll give you the chance to discover it for yourself. Again, this is in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you are interested in food storage or emergency preparedness supplies, got just the place for you. It's called lifesavingfood.com. I've actually provided a link in my show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Just click on the link. Go do a little window shopping. I bet you find something that you go, hey, now actually, that could be very handy. I'd like to, uh, like to keep that on hand. Well, we've heard a lot of talk about student loan forgiveness. And you, you don't have to be cynical to wonder if all that student loan debt forgiveness isn't just a particularly shameless effort to buy votes. I've got a great article here from James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies from the American Institute for Economic Research on three unintended consequences of student loan forgiveness. And I share this uh, I share this commentary with you because these are two individuals who I really have come to trust. I think these are two of the more reasonable voices out there who take the time to size up the situation, crunch the numbers, look at it from as many possible angles as they can. And then render their thoughts on, okay, here's what, here's what our take is. But I think they've got a pretty solid take on this. They say, given Americans vo- American voters' pension for delivering divided government, it might seem strange that Democrats were able to wrest control of the White House and both houses of Congress in the 2020 election. And while there will clearly be a power-sharing agreement... In the Senate, Democrats find themselves in an enviable position, one they've used to great effect in the past. I should probably point out here, this article's been republished. I don't remember when this was originally published. I think it was published on the Foundation for Economic Education originally. But uh, this this was uh, shortly after Biden was, was elected. Anyway. Nonetheless... They say the last time a Democratic president had majorities in both houses of Congress, we saw Barack Obama take control of a legislative agenda to push the Affordable Care Act through. And the ACA passed with the vote of only one Republican, Ah Kwang Joseph Cao, in the House, although the Democrats didn't need his vote, and without any Republican support in the Senate. Now, they say not often does one party dominate the political landscape such that it can pass legislation at will, but... The few examples that exist provide a telling look at what a united government might be expected to yield in our own time. 
They say, we've seen a number of big-ticket pieces of legislation since 1935, laws that changed the very fabric of American political life by empowering the federal government well beyond its constitutional limitations. In addition to the ACA in 2010, Social Security in 1935 and Medicare in 1965 were also implemented when the Democrats had control of both the White House and Congress. So given the results of the recent election, and they're talking the 2020 election, it should come as no surprise that we're poised for the next big expansion, student debt forgiveness, a promise Joe Biden made frequently as he campaigned for the presidency. Now, like the big ideas that came before it, This idea will cost us more than we can afford from day one and far more than its proponents will admit. Biden's plan, as currently envisioned, would cost over $300 billion, but that's just this year. The plan will set in motion unintended consequences that will doubtlessly persist for generations. So first, they say next year's crop of new students will understandably demand that their loans be forgiven too, and so will those of the year after that, and so on. This program will quickly become a sort of college, universal basic income, where the government just hands out $10,000 to every college student. And some argue that if this results in a better educated populace, well, then it's worth the cost. But it won't result in a better educated populace. It will result in a whole bunch of students majoring in things the market doesn't value, and another batch simply taking a four-year vacation on the taxpayer's dime. Now, heretofore... Graduates knew they needed marketable skills in order to repay their college loans. But when student loans are forgiven as a matter of course, graduates bear no cost for wasting our collective resources by studying things the market doesn't value or by not studying at all. Second, James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies say colleges and universities will respond to this new reality by raising tuition commensurately. Tuition and fees were a pretty consistent 18 to 19 percent of family income from the 1960s until 1978. In 1965, the federal government started guaranteeing student loans. In 1973, Congress established Sally May and charged it with providing subsidized student loans. And by 1978, tuition and fees had started a steady march to 45 percent of family income today. So when the government makes it less painful for students to borrow, whether by guaranteeing, subsidizing, or forgiving loans, it takes away some of the pain of student borrowing, which makes it easier for colleges and universities to raise tuition. Third, you can expect a lot of taxpayers to cry foul. Homeowners will quite sensibly wonder why the government is not forgiving their mortgages. After all, student loans add up to about $1.4 trillion, while American mortgages total more than $16 trillion. If relieving students from the burden of their debts is a good idea, well, it should be an even better idea to relieve homeowners of theirs. And what about students who worked multiple jobs or attended less prestigious schools so they could avoid going into debt? Why aren't they being rewarded? What about students who diligently paid off their debt and are now debt-free? Will they receive nothing? What about, fantastically, people in the trades? Is it reasonable to charge people via the higher taxes loan forgiveness will bring who did not go to college to subsidize those who do? Regardless of the answers to these questions, implementing this plan will be fraught with difficulty. And in the end, there there are three big winners in this scheme. Universities will be able to raise their prices even more because students will, all of a sudden, have extra money to pay. 
Students who took on gargantuan levels of debt will be able to force their fellow citizens to pick up the tab. And finally, politicians will buy votes by appearing to be magnanimous with other people's money. So James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies say the big losers are future students who will see their tuition spike yet again, working-class American taxpayers who find themselves stuck paying for other people to go to college, and, of course, the taxpayers in general who, as always, are left holding the bag. I know. it's If you're the person who's holding student loan debt and you're, oh, well, but I want to get rid of $10,000 worth of this debt, that probably seems like a big old wet blanket being thrown right over the top of you. I think it's accurate analysis, though. <laughs> I think it's worth paying attention to what they're saying here. It's a short-term gain that uh, is going to cost a lot in the long run. And I have to wonder, too. You know, I just... Uh, maybe maybe I've spent too much time hanging around Connor Boyack, but I really have to wonder if college really is the investment that, that we've been led to believe that it is. Now, this is not an easy, you know, decision to come to. In fact, in, in my household, I would say we're kind of divided on this. My wife definitely thinks, well, college, you know, that's the way you, you go through and you get that degree, and then that shows that you're ready for good jobs, good-paying jobs. And I know that used to be the norm. I'm not so sure that it is today. Frankly, I have uh, I have a lot more faith in those who are going into the trades and learning a good marketable skill that immediately can have them employed and creating value and earning income and saving and doing whatever it is they want to do for the future as opposed to someone who, well, I'm not really sure what I want to do. I guess I'll get a gender studies degree and maybe some interpretive dance degree and look, there's nothing wrong with people wanting to study those things, but those aren't necessarily marketable skills. They aren't ways of creating value and solving problems for other people. In fact, truth be told, the gender studies degree is probably more about creating problems for people, right? <laughs> unless uh, unless they're, they're just out there to, you know, to battle for social justice. But I think we're reaching a very interesting crossroads where people may actually start to reconsider. Do I really want to send my kid to college? You look at some of the, the wokeness that just permeates college campuses. And some of the college campuses, what is it? Is it uh, University of California, Berkeley, that uh, now is, is talking about uh, banning students that are not uh, people of color from common spaces in, uh, in some of the buildings. I mean, basically, they've, they've reinvented segregation. And, and they, they treat it as if it's progress. I know. I know. It's, it, it takes some, some pretty good mental flexibility to, to engage in those kinds of gymnastics. But the rest of us are supposed to just nod our heads and, oh, yeah, that's, that's really good. Yay. Look at that. Inclusivity. Diversity. This is great. Equity. We're, we're good. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like if I was packing my kid up to send, send him or her off to college, I kind of have to, to wonder just how much mind laundering is going to be done during their visit. Now, not to brag here, but uh, one thing I have tried to do is raise my kids to at least be people who question, people who are willing to question the narrative, think outside the box. By the way, that doesn't mean they march in lockstep with me, but... You're going to have to work if you want to bamboozle them. And I think that's a worthy goal for, for most parents. Teach your kids to have that healthy 
sense of skepticism. You know, the better to avoid being deceived or misled. All right, we'll take a quick break. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You'll find a link in my show notes to hslammo.com. And I hope that you will take advantage of uh, using that link to access one of the finest companies for quality new and remanufactured ammunition. Again, that's hslammo.com. Reach out to them, buy some ammo from them, let them know that their advertising message reached your ears. All right, couple of different things in the, the closing segment here. Uh, first and foremost, the ruling class and its enablers don't think much of us common folks. Maybe you got that impression. If not, the last couple of years were definitely a fertile learning place for us to see just how much contempt the ruling class and, say, its media and bureaucratic enablers have toward the average person. I think uh, they're, you know, they'd be, they'd be fine with us if we just shut up and do whatever we're told. Unfortunately, some of us have a little problem with that. But, hey, just between us, we know who keeps the world running. I've got a great commentary here from Annie Holmquist. Now, interestingly enough, this is about if you want to change hearts and minds, try humility. But she ties in here to the people who get their hands dirty for a living and what they do to make the world work compared to the people who are just trying to rule everything and, you know, stay on top of us and, and, and keep us doing whatever it is they're telling us to do. Annie says, a friend recently sent me a popular meme called the Pyramid of Intellect. It shows the various academic degrees starting at the base of the pyramid with a high school diploma and narrows its way up to a Ph.D. But at the very top of the pyramid, pyramid rather, is a little section that reads, People who fix their cars after watching do-it-yourself videos. I've seen that same pyramid of intellect, too. And the little piece on top of the pyramid was people who still refused the COVID vaccination, even after all the pressure of the past couple of years. Either way, she says, I laughed at it, but I couldn't deny that this meme contains a decent amount of truth. Political elites, journalists, and those in the ivory towers are in the headlines. They're giving the press conferences and standing in front of millions, looking important and poised far above the common folk. Those who often work with their hands, barely visible as they're tucked in some little corner of, our, of middle America. But which of those two groups is the wiser? She asks. The simple folk who are in the trenches working with their hands or those who think they're hot stuff just because they hold an important position in Congress or academia or journalism or the bureaucracy that seems increasingly to be running the country. Well, she says, for my money, I would say the simple folk. Now, is this always the case? No, of course not. But she says, I think it can often be true because of one important quality that these simple folk have, humility. Now, I like what she's saying here. Simple folk are usually not full of themselves, and this their humility enables them to listen to other people and ideas while also opening the door to greater life experience. For those who are humble will be less afraid to get in the trench and try things. If they fail, so what? They're already humble, so they don't have far to fall. Plus, they know they can learn from failure regarding what to avoid or what to do differently next time. 
The humble are not condescending or lofty in the way they present their own ideas to the masses. Instead, they speak the average Joe's language while standing shoulder to shoulder with him. And this makes the simple, humble people more relatable. As a result, their ideas have a chance to be far more influential than those of any proud influencer on some social media platform. So how do we know this is true? Well, Annie Holmquist says because we've seen it play out previously in history. Author Neil Postman elaborates on this idea in his book, Building a Bridge to the 18th Century. Now, the success of the American founders, he implies, was not in their elite superiority, but in the fact that they were average folks doing average things, thinking big thoughts, but communicating them in a humble, average, commonplace way to their family, friends, and neighbors. Take founders like Thomas Paine, writer of the revolution's influential Common Sense, for instance. Postman writes, Paine was not, of course, a professional philosopher. He had been a corset maker in England and then in America a printer. To write political philosophy did not require of him or anyone else the mastery of an arcane, specialized vocabulary. The language of the common person was deemed entirely suitable for the expression of philosophical ideas. End quote. So Annie says, in other words, the reason the founders were so successful at getting their ideas to take and spread to the point that an entire nation was established on those ideas is that the founders themselves often lived humble, unpretentious lives. And they made their ideas accessible to the common man. They were straightforward and courageous, skeptical but clear in their writings. Postman writes, if one goes through the the list of famous prose writers of the Enlightenment, one finds few who thought of themselves as professional authors, fewer as philosophers, and even fewer who made a living as either. These men were public intellectuals who had something to say to the public, not merely to one another, and who had found a form in which to say it. And that's why the consequence of their writing, consequences rather of their writing, were so serious. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, There are many people these days who say they want to make a difference in the world. The trouble is, many of them seem to get into politics or they build a big platform or do something impressive. And when that happens, they immediately forget the common man, placing themselves above him. In doing so, they lose one of the greatest opportunities for influence that they could have had. She says there are many of us, humble, plain, average folks in middle America, doing our jobs, feeding our families, sending our kids to school. We want to make a difference for good, but we look at our humble, simple lives and wonder what we, the average folks of America, can do to put her back on course. Well, the answer is a whole lot. As the greatest man who ever walked the earth once said, whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. The average man doing average things, thinking great thoughts, and doing it all with an attitude of humility will have a far greater impact on this world than any arrogant politician, academic, or journalist can ever hope to have. And it is those average Joes that America needs. I don't know why this particular essay from Annie Holmquist hit me so hard, but um, I really needed to hear that. I suspect I'm probably not the only one. But uh, I, I think she's right. And, and in my experience, the people who are out there opening minds that have slammed shut like a steel trap, the people who are changing hearts, 
with a gradual, long-term approach of speaking truth, planting seeds of truth, and you know, backing away and letting them take root and take hold and 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 grow and and germinate. You know, that's that's where the real change takes place. And the biggest battles that you see taking place is usually not some big ideological throwdown aired on Fox and all the other networks. You know, it's usually the biggest battles that are taking place are the ones that are taking place out of sight. In fact, I would wager, you know, maybe I'm wrong on this, but the biggest battles in our own lives are usually the battles that take place within. Those outer battles, yeah, they're not they're not as big a deal as that internal one that each of us, or I should say most of us, have to fight on a day-to-day basis. So why am I sharing this with you? Well, number one, I want to provide encouragement. I don't think there is one true way that this is this is how you should live your life, this is what you should spend your time doing. But I do believe there are better ways than what we're typically encouraged to do. For instance, a lot of what we see happening around us is is uh, argumentation and, and just division and conflict, purse swinging, my goodness, somebody's going to lose an eye. But every so often, you got to ask yourself, what's really being accomplished here? Can you step back from it and decide, you know, is, is, this, is all this arguing? For instance, arguing with strangers online. I know it feels good. I've done it myself. But what does it actually accomplish? You see somebody standing out, you know, holding a sign, protesting. I don't care what the cause is. Do you feel like it's your duty to set them straight if it's a cause you don't agree in or agree with, rather? I mean, some people do. So that's just their their personality type. All I'm asking you to consider is maybe there is a better way. And as far as the better way goes... I think Annie Holmquist has dialed into one of the key attributes for what it takes to really get that needle to move in the right direction. And it's humility. I know this makes some people uncomfortable, but I still maintain, you know, the the humility to actually ask God for help is probably one of the biggest, most overlooked resources available to any of us. And yet it's one of the most useful resources for those who avail themselves of it. How do you explain that in a scientific world or a world where there are a lot of people who don't even believe in God? Well, first of all, you don't really need to explain it to them. Because chances are it's something you're working out on your own. But if somebody does ask, speak the truth with love, plant the seeds, and walk away. This is The Brian Hyde Show.